Hello and welcome to The Water Cooler, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre. My name is Nick Cater and I'm the Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. As we record this podcast, there's really only one topic to talk about, the coronavirus pandemic, which has really changed dramatically uh, not just the country and its life and activities, but really our priorities, I think, in terms of where we go in policy terms. Things are happening so quickly right now that it's hard to keep up with them, let alone make considered judgments. And I think what we desperately need right now in this, in this debate is some uh, chance for reflection. The, the, we, we really have no room for intellectual uh, contemplation in the speed of events, and we need to make that. Otherwise, we'll end up making some very bad decisions, is my view. So what our plan is in a, in a series of, of water coolers for the duration, if you like, of this. We're going to be inviting people in to inform us, people who haven't got necessarily a direct hands-on involvement in either the medical side or the economy necessarily, but we hope uh, we'll have a perspective that can help us get through this together as a nation. And for the first one, I, I brought in a, 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 a very, very respected economist, somebody who does know more about the economy than, than uh, just about any of us, and who has been a policy advisor to uh, Tony Abbott in government and in opposition, and has recently written a very, very valuable book, Restoring Hope, which I see really is my sort of go-to book these days if I want to get my head around anything. I'm talking, as many of you know, about Andrew Stone. Andrew um, has a career in Treasury and in government. As I say, I'll ask him where else in a minute. But I suspect, Andrew, welcome to the program, by the way. I've, I forgot to say hello. Hello and welcome, Andrew, to the water cooler. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Terrific. Now, um, Andrew, just to, before we get on to the real substance, I just want to ask a bit about you, really. Um, as many uh, people would know, you have a very... Um, uh, eminent father uh, in in John Stone, a man who was a, a, a remarkable economist and thinker and public policy thinker in his own right, who worked for both Liberal and um, Labour treasurers. Uh, he worked for Paul Keating um, when the Hawke and Keating government first came in, and I think probably gave them all the good advice that they took just between us. But what was it like growing up in that household? First of all, you know, how old were you? in 1983 when the government changed and your father found himself working for Labour? I would have been 16 or 17 then. Uh, yeah, so um, uh, yeah, still still at high school at that time. And uh, no, it was, it, was, um, it was very interesting, of course, having a father who was so closely involved in economics, even though at that time and for a long while I wasn't myself heading in the, the direction of an economics career. I've always had an amateur interest in economics, uh, but at that time I was actually much more focused on science and indeed that's where my... Uh, main training is, um, is well, really as a mathematician, as a pure mathematician. Uh, but it was nevertheless very interesting uh, being in a household with someone who was so closely involved in the policy process and, and also uh, with parents who so strongly valued just having discussions and debate. And um, you know, it, was, it was great to grow up in a household where you could have lots of arguments about lots of things and, and as a result learn lots of things about, about uh, economics and about all, all manner of subjects. Well, I should say, actually, uh, we're obviously uh, having to adapt at the Menzies Research Centre technically, and so you can see how we're recording this podcast uh, in these times of social distancing. Uh, it's by way of an, very much innovation for us, uh, so bear with us if there are a few technical glitches. 
Andrew, it seems to me, um, you know, we think about the medical consequences of, of coronavirus, and it, it's quite clear uh, from the epidemiological evidence that's coming through on this that uh, to be seriously ill with coronavirus, to die of coronavirus, you really need a pre-existing condition or a comorbidity, uh, as the uh, doctors call it. And in fact, uh, evidence coming out of Italy that I've seen says that you, you, you have a 60, 60, 66% of the people who die of coronavirus have two comorbidities. So they, they might have something as serious as cancer or uh, anything that will uh, you know, erode their defence mechanism. Uh, but to translate that to economics, I, I think you'd agree with me that we, we, you know, it's not if, but but it's now certain that we will go into a, a recession, and it'll be more than just a technical one. I don't think you disagree with that, would you? I don't think it's quite likely. Though I think we also oughtn't really to think about it as a, you know, there's a big concern as to whether oh we must try to avoid recession. But when you have circumstances like this, I just don't think you should think about it in the normal way. Yeah, ind- indeed, Andrew. But I wonder if. You know, just as a to become uh, seriously ill with coronavirus, you probably need a pre-existing medical condition. I wonder if to go into serious recession, you need pre-existing economic ailments, if you like, that, 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 that help tip you over the balance. Things that perhaps would have sent you into recession anyway at a much smaller, uh, with a much smaller disruption than this one. Well, do you think that's true? Did our economy have pre-existing ailments? The economy certainly do, and it certainly is not helpful. I, I think in these very unusual circumstances, you can have a situation where even a very well-prepared economy against general economic shocks can still suffer in these sorts of exceptional times. A shock, that's enough to tip it into a recession, but it will cope much less well, and it will take them a lot longer to come back out of that if the defences have not been well-prepared during good times. And this has been one of my general concerns about the Australian economy, that we've continued to perform in a, in a tolerably tolerable fashion uh, over the past, say, dozen years, really, since the end of the Howard government. But we haven't been preparing our defences against exactly the sort of shock that's, that's uh, struck us here quite out of the blue. Uh, and as a result, the economic implications are likely to be much worse than they need have been. Yeah. So maybe we could just go through some of those um, uh, those pre-existing problems and let's first of all say, look, why, ask the question, why weren't they fixed? We've had 28, almost 29 years, I think, of unbroken growth. Surely you'd think that we could have dealt with a few of those issues in that time. But I think it's, I mean, my view, and I wonder if you share it, is that, that it's very hard to make hard economic reform decisions in good times, it, it often takes a, a crisis to force them upon you. Is that true or is that overly pessimistic? Well, in part, sometimes a crisis can help, though equally sometimes crises can cause people to rush to bad policy decisions, and that is a real risk in the current environment, that we end up rushing to do a lot of things that actually end up being very bad policy. Indeed, that's also what happened at the time of the uh, great you know, global financial crisis, that uh, you know, we had a first package of stimulus measures to guard against that from the Rudd government in late 2008 that were actually broadly sensible, got bipartisan support, but then within a couple of months you had another vastly larger and much more ill-thought-out package of measures uh, that were very proved very difficult to unwind and that had created, uh, contributed to some of the considerable problems that Australia has continued to face over the last decade and now faces going into this next crisis. So sometimes a crisis can be unhelpful in that it prompts bad decisions. What really is needed 
to guard against this is strong leadership from people who are far-sighted about the risks and about the need to guard against them. And that's the sort of thing we, we got quite a lot of during the Howard government, uh, the, the determination of the Howard government to pay down our um, Commonwealth net debt so that we entered the financial crisis in 2008 with negative net debt, with money actually in the bank, which was an extremely rare position for Western governments. That was, that was an important uh, guard against the um, more, more serious damage from the financial crisis. Uh, these are the sorts of things that governments with good leadership can do, and I, I would like to you know, believe that actually that's the sort of thing that the Abbott government was trying to do with their 2014 uh, budget that was so much criticised, but it was partly a realisation that you need to do you take tough decisions, and although some of them proved not to be you know, um, as well worked out as they could have been, whatever, a lot of them were good, but just difficult decisions. The trouble is we spent much of the last 12 years with governments not taking difficult decisions and choosing to do what's easy at the time and politically popular at the time. And that's how you end up when a crisis does suddenly come along uh, without your, your defences having been well replenished. Yeah, the point you make, Andrew, that, that cri- in, in the times of crisis, if we make bad decisions, we can make very bad decisions, I think. It seems to me to be very relevant now. Um, but to go back to, I guess, the last uh, challenge we had, the last financial crisis of 2008-2009, uh, uh, when Labor was in power, to what extent were decisions that were made then by the Labor government... Um, acted as, as if you like, you know, sort of festering sores in the economy that, that have made us weaker and more vulnerable to the next recession. We might talk about central banks, by the way, in a minute, but just restricting ourselves to the decisions made at that time, how many of them are, are now coming back to haunt us? Well, the main one relates to the um, budget easing that was undertaken at that time. As I mentioned, um, the thing was, in, in the, the face of the developing financial crisis in late 2008, after the collapse of Lehman Brothers in you know, mid-September of that year, it became apparent that this was a really major crisis and that significant support uh, would be needed to try tie the Australian, the Australian economy through this shock. And much of what was done initially was very sensible. So the Reserve Bank cut interest rates very sharply and was in a position to do so because prior to the crisis, you know, the, the cash rate was at 7.25%. It could be swiftly cut to 3% within the space of five months. Also, the initial um, actions of the, the um, Rudd government in a first stimulus package in late 2008 were broadly sensible and, and received bipartisan support. The trouble was then there were a whole lot of actions that were taken in a second, vastly larger um, stimulus package in early 2008 uh, that gave us things like the Pink Bat scheme, the Building the Education Revolution for you know, $16 billion of spending, various of these measures that contributed to a major deterioration in the budget position that has taken an extremely long time to repair to even get back to balance. So we have ended up running since that period, the longest um, uh, consecutive run of Commonwealth budget deficits by far in the post-war period. And the result is that we've gone from a position of negative net financial, uh, sorry, negative net Commonwealth debt prior to the financial crisis to a position where we enter, we enter this latest crisis. Happily, at least, the government's got the, the budget back to balance. But in terms of debt, we enter it with record Commonwealth net debt, both in dollar terms and as a, and as a share of GDP. And that's a problem because it limits our fiscal scope to respond or, or reduces it. Um, so the, the decisions you make do have these long-term ramifications. Uh, and the, it's very unfortunate, in fact, that the Rudd government instituted that second package. I, I fear there's some relevance potentially to that in terms of what the Morrison government's doing. I think their first stimulus, first response package to the um, current crisis 
was was broadly sensible. There were one there was one out of the five sort of main elements that I didn't think was so well directed, but four of them were generally well directed to the specifics of this particular challenge. But there's a risk with the second much larger package that they've already brought out uh, that some of the some of the focus of the measures there is getting less and less well tuned. And a key issue for the uh, Rudd government and then later for the Gillard government was the ability to wind back the measures that they'd taken when it became apparent that they weren't necessary. And again, in the first stimulus package of the Morrison government this time around, there was a, there was a big focus up front on saying measures need to be you know, well targeted, but they also need to be scalable and scalable back if they're no longer appropriate. There's much less focus on that, I think, in the second package. And that's something the government will have to be very concerned about because this issue is moving so fast, it is quite possible that what is deemed to be suddenly necessary in the current moment may look like a massive overreaction in even in as little as a month's time, let alone in two or three months' time. And uh, the, the government needs to be careful that it doesn't find itself still implementing measures at great fiscal cost that turn out to be completely inappropriate in six months' time. Yeah, I agree, absolutely. And I think that's, that comes back to where we started, that what we really need is space in this discussion for some calm consideration. And, and I think, um, you know, I mean, if I can cut the Rudd government a bit of slack, not something I, I do terribly frequently, I must say, which is probably my, my particular prejudices, but to cut them some slack, I think we can now see how difficult it is uh, in uncertain economic circumstances when the economy basically goes from equilibrium, if you like, to disequilibrium. You know, you, you, you're, you're struggling for anywhere to put your foot, you know, to get a grip with your foot, uh, let alone try and make a sensible step forward. So... But in this crisis, I think undoubtedly um, consider, the conditions are considerably more uncertain and more unstable and more more risky than they were back then. But so let's let's let's. I think we we should um, at this stage probably reserve judgment on on what the government's doing, except to wish it well and give it the best advice, which we'll attempt to do now. Of course, now absolutely. Uh, could, I, could I just say on that? And, and, and I, I agree. You make a good point about the Rudd government. The criticism. Of that second package was not even necessarily at the time that oh this is this is a mistake. I think more people were prepared to say that, but nevertheless, so much was happening still so fast at that time that it's very difficult to be critical of the government for doing that necessarily as its best judgment at the time. The problem was when you rolled into 2010 and 2011, and they were still continuing with these measures that were inappropriate, and partly they hadn't planned for how you could wind them back, and they didn't have the guts to wind them back. That's what I'm saying here is that. So I'm not going to try and second-guess what the government is doing now. They're better informed. They have more experts providing them with advice. But they do need to be still thinking with that in the back of their mind. Are we planning our measures not only so that they're well-targeted, and I think, I think that's become less true in the second package, but also so that we can respond in terms of the scale, not just ramping up but also ramping down if need be, if things turn out to be less bad than we'd feared. Yeah, yeah. That's a very, very, very... Uh sound point which I think all of us would agree look uh, the, the, in your book uh, Restoring Hope which I must say congratulate you on again Andrew it's a magnificent work Thanks. Um, you, you uh, another um, um, group apart from governments that you you, you you are critical of in their response uh, in this case not their immediate response once again to the financial crisis but how it played out in the last 10 years central banks around the world you know bodies like our reserve bank uh, and on their uh, their their responsibility for setting uh, interest rates um, you feel that they let us down quite badly on that could you explain that yeah well 
yeah, my, my take here is that they didn't let us down badly in the initial response. The financial crisis was a huge financial shock. And I remember being inside the Reserve Bank actually monitoring overseas economies at the time. And the scale of the shock to international trade and to financial markets was enormous. So I don't actually blame the central banks of the most directly affected economies in, in America, in North America and Europe, uh, taking the very drastic action that they took uh, in cutting interest rates, basically the, the overnight cash rates basically to zero and indeed holding them there for, for a number of years. And I think the Reserve Bank responded very um, very effectively and very swiftly here in Australia when they cut the overnight cash rate from 7.25% down to 3%. What's interesting is in Australia at that time, first of all, we, we took a courageous decision not to follow other central banks around the world down to zero, which first of all took a lot of courage by Glenn Stevens as the governor and the board at the time. But also the interesting thing is within more or less a year of the initial massive shock with the collapse of Lehman's, Australia did something that was pretty much unprecedented among central banks around the world. We started raising interest rates again when it became apparent that for a range of reasons idiosyncratic to Australia, we weren't going to be nearly as badly affected as we'd either feared or as these other countries uh, were being affected, in part because of you know, massive stimulus by the Chinese government and as a, as a result, massive demand for our iron ore and coal. And the Reserve Bank looked at that and what was happening to housing markets because of very much lower interest rates and said, okay, it's time to start raising interest rates again. And we went back up from a cash rate of three to, to four and three quarter percent. And that, again, was a very courageous decision and, a, and I believe, history has proven, a very wise decision by the Reserve Bank. So my take is that central banks in other parts of the developed world and in Australia generally did well through, through this period. And by and large, I'd say Australia continued to do well um, through to, you know, 2014, 15, 16. I am critical of other central banks, though, because having got interest rates down, they then started to refuse to ever get interest rates back up again. So you had a situation where you've now gone a decade, more than a decade in many cases, where interest rates have been held at absolute rock bottom levels. Now, many of these economies have had relatively weak uh, recoveries from recession. Certainly, the United States did up until 2016, had a relatively anemic recovery from recession. That argued that you needed to continue a generally accommodative monetary policy, but it didn't argue that you needed to continue to run monetary policy at unprecedented once in 80 or 100 year sort of stimulatory levels. And, and certainly you know, in 2013, 2014, 2015, um, you had a situation where the US economy was, was adding jobs quite at a reasonably brisk clip. Uh, the economy was generally recovering in an okay fashion. It simply was not appropriate to continue to leave the cash rate at the overnight, you know, federal um, overnight rate at zero, nor was it appropriate in many parts of Europe to do this. And the trouble is central banks have, um, as a result of continuing to do this, they've created a whole raft of other problems, particularly in asset markets. And I can come back to the Australian case and what's happened since 2016 in relation to the housing market, um, where, it's, where this has shown up in Australia's case and you have a massive increase in housing prices that occurred over the sort of period 2012 through to 2017. Uh, so you've had, you've had damage there, you've had damage to fiscal discipline, uh, but in particular also you now have a situation where they're entering another major crisis and none of them have any capacity really much to respond left. So even in Australia's case, we now have no capacity. You know, the Reserve Bank is on the sidelines, basically. It's, it's already thrown everything at it. It didn't replenish its capacity to respond. So it's basically, and, and by capacity in that case, we're talking about um, just the just the, the 
the tool of lowering interest rates as yeah. a way of stimulating the economy. Once you get to zero, there's nowhere left to go, right? Except Absolutely. Quite, except in frightening territory. Yeah. So, look, um, uh, let's unpack that a little bit more, Andrew, because I think it's important to get this clear when we're talking about why Australia was ill-prepared and also about some of the problems which, have, which I think have turned into political problems in this country, the asset bubble. So yes. if I get this right, the theory is if you bring the interest rates down for a long time, there's cheap money around, people will buy, people who can afford to have got credit worthiness, uh, typically older people, I guess, uh, people who have been employed for a long time, can buy not just one house but two, three or whatever, uh, and so there's more assets, and, and that same, I guess, would apply to the share market, right? People will buy That's those right. too. Uh, and so there, it becomes a, a class of people who've been able to take advantage of that cheap money and get these assets and houses, and a class that haven't. Now, a, 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 a cohort that, you know, by and large, wouldn't be able to would be uh, students or people entering the workforce for the first time, I guess. They, go, they, they, you know, they haven't got an established package pattern of earnings at the start of their career they've probably got a hex debt lurking there somewhere yeah. uh, they're not well placed to, to take advantage of loans even at that cheap money right so yep. over a period of time is that where we get to the position where we are now where house prices seem impossibly high for anybody mm. trying to save for their first deposit it is indeed in part how we get to that now in Australia's case I think there's been another major compounding effect and this is why it's this housing, the housing price um, boom that occurred from mid-2012 through to mid-2017, especially in Sydney and Melbourne, has been both a significant problem and is still a significant problem, uh, but is also something that was within, oddly enough, within the power of the federal government to respond to. So the additional factor here was the incredible extra demand that was created by uh, mass immigration. So Australia went from a situation where under the Hawke-Keating and Howard governments, you'd had uh, an average level of immigration of about bit over 100,000 um, per annum in terms of the net overseas migration into Australia. And that was already an extremely rapid rate on a per capita basis by international standards. So we were already basically running at a rate of immigration that was the fastest in the developed world with, with no sort of major economy exceptions. And then we went in a position from the mid-2000s onwards, so the late period of the Howard government and then all through the period since, where we've doubled that rate of um, net overseas migration. And that creates an enormous amount of extra demand for housing in a market that's been notoriously known as where it's difficult for supply to respond. So the combination of that and interest rates being perpetually ratcheted down so that, so that there is an incentive for people to as it were, borrow more because they can afford now to borrow more without the mortgage payments becoming too onerous, that has seen housing prices in Australia bid up massively uh, through that 2012 to 2017 period, we then had a had the extraordinary. Um, it's it's insufficiently remarked upon how how what a strange thing this was. We had the extraordinary situation where in mid 2017 the housing market did finally roll over and housing prices started to come down, without the Reserve Bank having ever raised interest rates. The normal cycle is that um, you see housing prices start to rise, the Reserve Bank as the economy strengthens and asset prices. Um, uh, spiral upwards, the Reserve Bank responds and then um, it raises rates. That helps to, to choke off the increase in the asset markets. And then as prices start to re-equilibrate, the Reserve Bank can cut interest rates so forth. We had a situation here where interest rates have just kept going down and down and down and down. Um, and so that's that's created this situation where, as you say, it creates inter- and intragenerational effects as well as all sorts of other bad consequences. But the inter- and intragenerational effects are that young people trying to get into this market have just seen prices constantly getting further and further away, no matter how much you try to save. 
you find that you, you can't, it's hard for a long period, hard even to keep up with the deposit that you required um, to even just to get a foot in the door. Uh, and also intragenerationally, you know, anyone who had assets saw the value of those. You got a big windfall gain because the value of those assets went up without you doing anything, whereas anyone who hadn't got a foot in the door in the asset markets found themselves getting further and further in relative terms left behind. Yeah, and I think that point you make is very good intergenerational um, uh, discrepancy of wealth and it's leading to inequity of wealth and it's leading to um, a resentment, I think, and is feeding the political bubble. I mean, it, it's interesting... I wonder if you see these two things as related, but if you look about what's happening at elections around the world, um, in Britain, for instance, Jeremy Corbyn would have won the last election if voting had have been cut off at the age of 30. I mean, if only under 30s could vote, he would have won comfortably. Uh, uh, the, the same here. I mean, Labour would be in power now if we did the same. And it, in New Zealand, if you did the opposite, if you said you couldn't, you're not old enough to vote till you're 35, and I think there's something in that, by the way. But... Um, if, if you were to do that, can't be a US senator thing. until you're 35. I think so. <laughs> I mean, there's no way Jacinta Ardern would be prime minister now. You'd still have a national government. So there is this, and it's always been thus to some extent, but it's very stark now and is deciding elections. And you think that that's part of this? Um, you know, the economic. There's an economic question here too, isn't there? In this, it's not just whether you're young and idealistic. You have different economic interests. Yeah. Well, it. it they're very much related. Now, the trouble is sometimes the fact that people are having economic difficulties can lead them to look for all sorts of um, solutions which are not good, not well-based solutions. So the idea that, you know, to me it's a crazy idea that you would have thought that electing a Jeremy Corbyn was going to mean that your situation would become better if you were a, you know, a young person there. Nevertheless, the thing is that the factors that have created some of this resentment that has contributed to that, they, they are very real and they are things where it's, it's perfectly proper to ask is it appropriate that policies have been set in such a way that, that this has happened? Now, the point I make in my book is actions, for example, of central banks, they have impacts on asset markets all the time. So it's, it's long been understood that there will be cycles you know, where the Reserve Bank, in our case, is, say, uh, cutting interest rates, where that will assist with asset prices um, you know, to, to rise more than they would otherwise have done, and that provides something of a windfall benefit to people who, are, who already hold assets and, by and large, to older people rather than younger people. But the quid pro quo is that when the central bank is then raising rates, you have a situation where the reverse holds, and people have understood that as the Reserve Bank is trying to manage macroeconomic circumstances, you will get these up and downs. And as long as there isn't a sort of perpetual ratcheting in one direction, you take the rough with the smooth. The concern people have had here is that we've had this extended period where rates have gone down, and what's effectively happened is that it seems like a lot of people who had who had a lot of assets, for example, who'd seen the value of those assets deteriorate rapidly if you were in America, so the stock market crashed after the financial crisis, they've been rescued, as it were, by central banks who've then driven those the values at least up until the very recent past because of the coronavirus, the, the Chinese virus scare. They, they've had the value of those assets rescued, uh, but it hasn't been part of the general cycle. It's just things have been ratcheted, interest rates have been ratcheted down and they've never been raised again and the situation as a result is people who had assets have been rescued from the downside and what's more they've had the value of those assets um, considerably increased over time while people especially younger people and it's getting to be a long period you know 10 or 12 years you go without seeing it the other side of any of these cycles young people who've joined the market are feeling cut out and saying I, I don't have a chance to get my, even my foot on the on the bottom rung of this ladder uh, so it's understandable they feel a lot of resentment. 
And, and, and I guess looking to where we are now in terms of how strongly we're going to be able to survive this, this downturn, and what it, the other thing, of course, it's done is, is to just fuel household debt so people borrow more than they had in the past, which is fine, you know, if the income's coming in to pay it. But when you get, you know, a loss of income or, you know, like we, many people are going to experience if they haven't already experienced, then you've got real danger of people not being able to re- reach their... Um, repayments and 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 um, I guess too. I mean, the interest rate game changes too, doesn't it? So there's a possibility interest rates could could rise at some point. So how you know how in in your very long list of concerns that you list in restoring hope, um, where does that rank? Well, that's an important one, and again, it goes to this whole, as you say, this whole issue of risk management that. Um, when Australia entered the global financial crisis again back in 2008, it was already a, a major concern, I think, that household debt to disposable income at an aggregate level across the whole economy already stood at 160%. In other words, we had, our, our debt was about you know, more than one and a half years' worth of the sort of total um, disposable income that households were bringing in. Uh, and that, by international standards, was an extremely high level. One of the very concerning things is that one would have hoped that crisis would have led to a reassessment of debt, and it did for many private businesses who got their houses more in order and lowered their debt levels to reduce their risk exposure. In Australia, it saw a stabilisation for a number of years, but then as interest rates kept being lowered further and further and further uh, on the basis that, oh, well, we need to you know, keep stimulating the economy, uh, household debt has actually started to rise again. So we've we now found find that um, as we enter the current crisis, household debt to disposable income is at 190%. So it's actually gone up substantially in that meantime. And the thing is, that leaves you very exposed. The households that have made that borrowing are very exposed uh, in the event you get a downturn. In a so just, just to unpack that, unpack that number for a second, does that, does that mean, in effect, that uh, for the average household, um, they, are, they, they were borrowing 160% of their annual income and now it's now it's one hundred and ninety percent. That's a significant rise. So right? It is a significant rise, especially when you started at such an extremely high level. And it's one of the many things that mean that we are much more exposed to a shock of the sort when we're now encountering than we were even going into the um, financial crisis. So one of the things I list is that we we had a whole lot of strengths going into the financial crisis that allowed us to respond quickly and as a result emerge relatively unscathed. So the fact that the cash rate was already high and therefore you could provide big cash flow relief to households by, by cutting the cash rate. That was a great strength we had in 2008. The fact that the, the budget had been in sustained large surplus for many years under the Howard government meant that we'd built up this fiscal buffer to our response. We also had a mining boom going on, which especially after the Chinese implemented a whole lot of major stimulus, provided a big, um, uh, you know, big buffer. So we had various strengths um, going into the uh, financial crisis which were able to offset some of the weaknesses, such as the high household debt. Many of those things we don't have going into the, this latest crisis, and at a household level, it's, it's even, we're even more exposed. Now, again, that's an average level, so what you'll find is that there are many households that have a much higher level of debt to offset others that don't have much debt at all and so forth. But it means that, on average, you know, households are very exposed. And when does that become a really big problem? Well, it's, it's a problem, as we mentioned, if interest rates start to rise, but there's probably not much risk of that happening near term but as always actually when you get if you get the risk of something compounding into a really major recession the big risk is if people lose their job because when do when does a high debt level suddenly become a major crisis for a household it's if you lose access to income 
altogether for a while and then suddenly you can't make any of your repayments and suddenly everything starts to compound and cascade into a disastrous situation. And so that's the risk again here is that if you do actually have people who are laid off for any extended period, if, they've, if they have borrowed a lot, suddenly what seemed like a good idea can turn into this, you know, this you know, catastrophic millstone around their necks. And so that, that's a real risk in the current situation. And it's one of the many sort of greater exposures that we have going into this major economic shock than we did have in 2008. Yeah. One of the things I might ask you to do, you might help us through as an, as a, as an economist, is to, to try and understand what, what, it, what the, government, the nature of government debt means. I mean, the government seems to be able to, unlike the rest of us, it seems to be able to go and borrow you know, huge amounts of money without filling in forms and all this. But anyway, it does. Um, we won't go into the reasons why that is. But, 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 but here's a question... What is debt in essence? Because it's not free money. It's not that you know that you can just borrow out of this endless pit. That money is coming from somewhere. I I think we sometimes need to remind ourselves that at some point that I, the money's got to be paid back, or at the very least, interest has got to be paid on that. So what we're essentially doing, it seems to me, is 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 covering our own for our, paying our own mistakes these days in in debt and passing that burden on to future generations of taxpayers. Is, is it as crude as that? No, that, that is exactly correct. Now, sometimes it's appropriate to do that, but, but all debt, whether it's business debt, whether it's household debt, whether it's government debt on behalf of people, is essentially borrowing. Uh, it, it, it's, it's bringing forward spending. So it's saying spending that otherwise could have occurred later. We're going to bring that forward. We have to pay for it, of course, though. Now, so... Um, at, at times, it makes perfect sense to do that, and in general, at times where there's an economic downturn, it, it does make sense for a brief period to say, well, a, a you know, federal government or even state government may think, we will do some borrowing, as it were, on behalf of people. You know, if people are afraid of their economic circumstances or the downturn, and as a result are very nervous and don't want to borrow, we can do some borrowing, and it may be appropriate to do that and use that to help provide people with income, to help tide them over difficult circumstances. And and always what you're really trying to do there is to avoid um, the creation of a sort of um, self-perpetuating downward spiral whereby you have some, a situation where people worry about what's going to happen so they pull back their demand. The fact that they're pulling back their demand and their spending causes other government, uh, sorry, other businesses to get into trouble. They start laying off more workers and it becomes this negative reinforcing spiral. If governments can step in and try to break that spiral before it starts, then you can avoid a whole lot of really bad consequences that are much more costly in the long term. So none of this is to say that it's a bad idea per se to do some borrowing, but nevertheless in doing it, you are taking from future generations to spend now. And so you have to be responsible at some point and pay all that back. Otherwise, not only, as you say, do you have the costs of um, interest expense, and from memory, I think in 2018-19, we were spending $14 billion already uh, um, a year on uh, you know, net interest payments at the Commonwealth level, which, again, by international standards of developed economies, is not a large amount, but but fundamentally, it's still that's a huge amount of extra hospitals, extra spending on roads, extra support, extra healthcare costs, and so forth that you, you, know, you could have you could be paying for it rather than just paying this in interest mostly to overseas lenders. Uh, you know, so, so you um, uh, first of all, that's a big cost. But also, the really big reason why you don't do this again from a from a government debt point of view is as a as a a risk management tool, again, you want to be prepared so that you are in a position where you can do that borrowing if a crisis hits. That's why it was a tremendous thing that the Howard government was very, and you know, Peter Costello played a major role in this. Um, you know, Nick Minchin as finance minister and others um, you know, 
they were very disciplined in saying we will take the, the very high um, by Australian standards debt levels that, that they were bequeathed by the Keating government and we'll pay those down. And the big benefit was not just in lower interest payments. The big benefit was that when the financial crisis struck in 2008, there was no question about you know, the foreign borrowers didn't have any hesitation in lending to Australia um, to undertake substantial stimulus and so forth to support the economy through that period, even though I think much of that stimulus proved somewhat, a good deal of it proved excessive. Nevertheless, it was a great position to be in where you could do that. Again, happily, Australia is still not in a position where foreign lenders are um, kicking up too much fuss about that, but we, but we are still we are more constrained than we were then, and it's, it constrains our capacity to manage risk and to handle crises if we don't start repaying the debt when we have the capacity to, which is what we should have been doing much more of over the last 10 years. We'll go back to the, the present crisis, and things are moving so quickly that I should, I should um, say by way of explanation, we've discovered with these podcasts that uh, they have a long shelf life. People come to them often quite, quite a while after we've, um, we've recorded them. It's more like a book than a newspaper in that respect. So uh, we should explain, I think, where we are. Um, I sense we're at the early stages of something that's got a long way to play out. But here, as we speak in, what, late March uh, 2020, uh, we're at the point where we have not yet controlled the spread of the virus in this country. It's still spreading at a very fast rate. Uh, so we haven't got a handle on that. We don't yet have a, a cure for this virus, although th- th- we suspect there may be one uh, closer than we think. Let's, let's hope and pray that is the case. But um, uh, you got it, and I want at this point you to take me from your knowledge inside what's, what you imagine is happening in, in the upper echelons of government, where they've got two things playing out, two, as, as the Prime Minister said recently, two challenges at the same time, a health challenge, a public health challenge, and an economic challenge, which just shows how complicated public policy can be. So what's it like in the room? I, I imagine the Prime Minister sitting there with, with the, the, the doctors in one ear and the economists in the other, both sort of trying to get his ear as to what the most urgent thing is. Is that how it would be, and how do you balance the two? I imagine that is exactly how it is, and it is a very difficult position to be in for a prime minister and a government, uh, precisely because these two competing positions are you know, they, they are strongly competing, and it's only going to get more so over the next few weeks. Uh, and and this, is, this is, it is going to be a very difficult position to start saying exactly how much economic damage are you prepared to... Um, Accept for a given number of lives saved. Now, you, know, you may well be right, incidentally, by the way, in, in saying this ha- may have a long time to play out, but this is where I, in my own sort of um, you know, thinking about this issue, I think one, one thing I think has been missing in all the debate the last few weeks, and by, by and large, I think the government has responded very well and very prudently up until I think I, I worry about over the last week, both state governments, especially led by Victoria and the federal government, have moved to a much more severe curtailment of economic activity than was happening before. I understand why they might be thinking that was appropriate, but I am seriously concerned that they've gone too far. In other words, that what's happened is that the, as it were, the health experts have have um, you know, prevailed much more strongly over the economic advice. And again, I understand you, you'll have a situation, health experts, they don't want a single person to die who doesn't have to die, but this is where it is useful to have some metrics, because I think what's going to be needed here is government needs to have some metric for thinking what, and for conveying to the general public 
what are the criteria we are using to determine what's the appropriate level of interference for general business activity and general activity of citizens? And as part of that, what are the sort of criteria that we will have for starting to wind some of these restrictions back? And to put that into specific context, I, I was looked up yesterday the, the data from the ABS. You know, there's an ABS publication. You know, they've got publications on all sorts of demographic data, including births and also deaths. You can look up the data for 2018. And uh, in 2018, uh, I know it's not de rigueur to make a comparison between the current crisis and, and flu, but uh, I think it is an appropriate one to think about in terms of thinking about these metrics. In 2018, uh, a little over 3,100 Australians um, died of influenza or pneumonia during the course of that, that year. Now, when you think that that's concentrated in the winter months, most many of those deaths will be concentrated in the winter months, and you work out what that works out to be, that suggests that for a period, extended period of three, four, five months during that period, there were probably more than 100 Australians dying every week of flu. Now, at the moment, tragically, we've just had, I, I believe, our ninth death from the, um, the Chinese virus, Wuhan virus. Of course, for every single one of those individuals and their families, that is a tragedy, and we wish to make sure that we do whatever we can to try to avoid any further um, deaths within reason. But, but what that those figures about the flu tell us is that as a society, we did have an understanding that actually, potentially more than a hundred deaths a year, hundred deaths a week, for a period of 15, 20 weeks a, a year is something we as a society have said, well, that's that's a an acceptable, you know, I hate to use that word, but that's a level, acceptable is not right, that's a level we are prepared to tolerate to say, well, we will allow the economy to continue to operate. You, of course, have, you know, we've always operated on the basis then that you say, well, who are the particularly vulnerable groups? In that case, it is, is as in this current crisis, the particularly elderly and those with any other respiratory diseases, heart problems, any other, we were talking about earlier comorbidities, but we don't say the whole economy stops. What you do is you hope that people are sensible and they don't ever visit a nursing home if they've recently been sick. Now, because this particular virus seems to be both simultaneously less, um, in general, less uh, virulent for younger people, but simultaneously more virulent and more dangerous for older people or people with those other conditions, I think we may, you know, it's quite possible we may soon have to move to a situation where we are instead focused on saying, let's be particularly vigilant about preventing this spreading into areas where there are older people, people with these other risks. But we can't shut down an economy on the basis of nine deaths over, this, over the period of about a month so far, as we're, you know, we're a few weeks to a month in, but nine deaths when during flu season you get more than, on average, more than 100 deaths a week. And that gives us a sort of metric, I think, for determining how we pull back. These are very, 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 yeah, very difficult decisions for government to make on the run uh, as they're having to. And uh, it seems inevitable to me uh, that mistakes will be made. In fact, we know some mistakes have yep. been already made and some we don't even know are mistakes yes. for some time. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure like you, uh, we wish the government well in their deliberations and, and hope that... Um, you know, people like you and your clear thinking can, can contribute to the way they frame these policies. But, uh, Andrew, it's been a, a, a terrific discussion and I, I, I tend to invite you back uh, regularly, if you can spare the time, to help us unpack um, some of these uh, economic issues uh, which we, we, we must understand uh, probably at no time than ever before if we're to make sensible public policy decisions. So thank you very much for your contribution. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been great. Cheers.
That was the water cooler brought to you from the Mentis Research Centre. And if you enjoyed that, then uh, please share it with your friends. I think there's various ways of doing that. You probably know better than I do. And, uh, and if you'd like to support uh, public content like this, then please, you can make a tax-deductible donation by going to our website, menziesrc.org. Thanks very much, and we'll be back again soon with another Water Cooler podcast. Mm-hmm.